Well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. This is, a, this is the balmiest Palm Sunday I can remember in a while. <laughs> kind of crazy. Had all my snow boots and coat put away for the winter, but uh, winter, uh, yeah, winter's like somebody you're having an argument that, that uh, stormed out of the room and came back in and said, and another thing, <laughs> I've got to tell you, right? Uh, but um, want to... Uh, Rick mentioned this, but wanted to mention it again. Um, one of the ministries that I am involved in uh, that I personally invest some money in, as a matter of fact, uh, is Great Oaks Camp. And if you would be interested in participating in the Great Oaks Banquet on April the 30th, I've got about 13 tickets to that event uh, that I'd be happy to give you uh, uh, one or more of those. Um, I... Uh, participate in this every year. I'm actually a board member at Great Oaks Camp, and it is an exciting ministry of reaching out into the, the most vulnerable parts of the Peoria community. And um, as I said, you know, I'd be happy to give you tickets to it uh, if, if you will commit to go. So uh, if not, don't take a ticket from me if you're not going to go. Uh, but, uh, but it is a good time. Uh, it's a, a great opportunity to learn more about the ministry and listen also to uh, our newest board member, Dr. Raleigh Washington, who is past president of Promise Keepers, if you're familiar with that organization. Uh, and he's also the founder of uh, Rock of Our Salvation Evangelical Free Church, the very first African-American church in the, evangelical, um, in the Evangelical Free Church. And we were partnered with them for many years uh, back in the early 80s. So uh, that's kind of a small world, the way things get connected. Also, uh, if you are interested in being baptized, we've got several people that are going to be baptized this next Sunday on Easter Sunday, which is a, a phenomenal day to get baptized if you haven't been, uh, because baptism pictures the burial of your old life and your resurrection to new life uh, as you put your trust in Christ, as Jesus was buried and raised, so you also are buried with him with your old life. Your old sin nature is buried with Christ and raised to new life uh, in your baptism is what that pictures. And so if you're interested in that, see me this week, uh, and we'll talk about that, and I'll, uh, we'll make sure you understand the gospel and are ready to do this. And uh, we'll make it happen next Easter Sunday, so it'll be a great day. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 11 uh, and John chapter 12. We're going to get into chapter 12 together. But let's, before we do that, let's, uh, let's get into, uh, let's, before we get into the Word, let's, let's pray and let's seek the Lord together. Father, uh, we come before you this morning and we ask your blessing on our study of your word. Father, we know that your word is not just given to us for informational purposes, but that our lives might be transformed as your Holy Spirit works uh, in our hearts to cause us to respond to what we read and study and learn. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would be at work in transforming us to look like Jesus and to make disciples the way that Jesus did. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, 
Well, as we approach God's Word this morning, let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered what Jesus was doing in the days after he heard that Lazarus was ill, but before he got to Bethany to raise him from the dead? You ever wondered that? I was doing a little bit of study this week, uh, putting together the chronology of events in Jesus' life, and what I realize is that Luke's gospel gives us part of the answers. And one of the things that he does on the trip is to meet Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? Some of you are back to Sunday school. He was the wee little man, right? Some of you are singing right now. I, okay. But, um, but he, he met this tax collector named Zacchaeus uh, who came to faith in him. One of the things, though, that Jesus does prior to leaving Galilee to go down to Bethany is he tells this crowd of people who are following him a story. It's a, a very specific story. It's the parable of the rich man and who? Lazarus, a man named Lazarus. And the story, if you're not familiar, goes like this, that there was a beggar who was named Lazarus who used to sit outside a rich man's gate and, and he was covered in sores and the dogs would come up and lick his sores as he sat outside the gate of this rich man's house begging. And the rich man had more than enough to eat and plenty of ease in life, but he ignored Lazarus to a great extent except to realize that he was there. Well, in the course of time, Lazarus died, and also the rich man died. And Lazarus went into the presence of God, into heaven. Uh, the, the story Jesus tells, he describes as being with Abraham at Abraham's side. And the rich man died also and went to hell. And, and the rich man in torment in hell calls across where he can see Lazarus over on the other side in glory and he says he says father Abraham send Lazarus with a little bit of water to touch my tongue because I am in agony in these flames and Abraham says don't you remember in your life you received good things and Lazarus bad things and now he is comforted and you are in agony but there's a great gulf fixed between us and you, and we, he can't come over to your side, and you can't come over to ours. And so the rich man calls back. He says, Father Abraham, send then Lazarus back from the dead to tell my brothers how to avoid coming to this place of agony and fire. And Abraham says... They have Moses and the prophets. And the rich man says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone returns from the dead, then they will believe. And Abraham, this is the last line of the parable, says to the rich man, If they do not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. Flash forward a couple days. Jesus is in Bethany. He raises a man who was named Lazarus from the dead. What do you think is going to happen? Will people 
believe that Jesus is who He claims to be, that He is the Messiah whom all of, the, uh, all of Moses and the prophets predicted was to come? Or not? Or will they refuse to believe even if someone was raised from the dead? What do you think? Let's look at the story. Let's find out what happens. Verse uh, 45 of John chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered and the council, gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad, so that from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. Remember what Jesus said? If they do not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if someone should rise from the dead. Last time I was with you, we looked at precisely that miracle of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which is an amazing thing. Can you imagine? This is a guy whose corpse has already started to decompose. And Jesus is able to stand outside the tomb and call his name and call the man back to life in an instant. That's amazing. I don't care who you are. No one but God can do that. No one. Our medical technology, whatever it is, will never be sufficient to do that. And Jesus is able to do it. What are the responses to that? Well, they immediately divide into two. Some of the people who went with Mary to the tomb and saw this, they believed. Because they knew that a man who can call the dead to life, who claims to be the Messiah, at the very least has a good claim to the title. And they believed that, no, Jesus is who He claims to be. He is the Messiah. 
Because no one can do that but God. Others, on the other hand, went to the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the members of the Jewish ruling council, what's called uh, elsewhere the Sanhedrin. What was their response? I'll give you a hint. It isn't faith in Jesus. Amen? Instead, there's a conspiracy hatched at the council. And they look at this and they say, look, there's a guy going around claiming to be the Messiah. He's doing large numbers of miracles. He's raised a guy from the dead in a town two miles away. And, and their response is to double down on their opposition to this guy. And their response, I think, in part is based on fear. They're fearful that if they allow this man, Jesus, this person that they see as a rabble-rouser and a revolutionary to gain followers, that the Romans will come in. And by the way, that's not a totally unreasonable fear. Within 40 years after this, after this time, the Romans do come in. And they do level Jerusalem. They take the temple down to the dirt. Down to the foundation stones. And it has never been rebuilt. And, there, and all of these chief priests, all of these Pharisees, the council, all of that was abolished in 70 A.D. And they are fearful that the Romans will destroy the temple and the nation and that will be the end of these guys and their positions of wealth and power and influence. And the Romans did do that. It wasn't an unreasonable fear that they would. The Romans did that in lots of places. But you know, the, the ironic thing about the fact that that actually happened is that it didn't happen because of their faith in Jesus, but because they rejected Him. And I think another big part of their response is based on scorn. These guys were the descendants, many of them, of Levi, through the tri you know, through, of the tribe of Levi, through the line of Aaron. They were the wealthy, the powerful, and the elite. They would have been the most highly regarded, wealthiest, most highly respected citizens in all the nation. And here, all the people are beginning to gather and follow this guy who is literally wearing all the clothes that he owns. I mean, Jesus, when he died, you could throw dice for everything he owned. And it was just the clothes that he used to be wearing. This is a guy from Galilee. This is a guy from the backwater, from the unsophisticated part of town. This, this, would, be like, this would be like the guys that work on Wall Street in New York talking about somebody from Mississippi. You get what I'm saying? This is, this is, from their perspective, one of those hillbillies from up north. We've got to get rid of this guy. He did not line up with 
their perception of what Messiah would be. They read the prophets, they read Moses, and they saw that the Messiah would be a great king. And they saw themselves as the leaders and guardians of the nation. But as they look at Jesus, they go, a great king? Messiah? Surely not. I mean, after all, this guy is just the poor son of a Galilean carpenter who was born before his parents were officially married. Surely that guy could not be who we're looking for. In fact, if, it's, if he's anything, he's the living embodiment of the reality that the line of David has declined quite a bit from the days when David was the royal, was the royal king. And because of that, Caiaphas gives this advice. Caiaphas is the high priest. It says that he was the high priest that year because the Romans at that time controlled who was going to be appointed high priest. Now Caiaphas had an unusually long tenure as high priest. He was actually high priest for 16 years. But there were a number of times in Jewish history when they were ruled by the Romans where the high priest got swapped out every single year. But he says... We should put this man to death rather than have the whole nation put to death. Just kill this guy. That'll solve the problem. Now, does that seem like wise advice? It does to all of them. It's dirty. It's shameful. It's sinful. But hey, this is how power politics has always played out for millennia. But John reminds us that that's not all it is. Look at, the, look at this text here. He did not say this of his own accord. This is verse 51. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 52. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas wicked words are prophetic Jesus will in fact die for the people but not the way that Caiaphas intends he will die for their sins and to bring together out of all nations one people for God out of both Jews and Gentiles that's what John is talking about when he says the children of God scattered abroad people from every language every nation every people group will come to follow this man, Jesus, as well as Jews. And so when Jesus dies, he is going to die for the people, but not the way that Caiaphas meant, in the way that God had intended from eternity past. And something you need to see in this is, is maybe not obvious at first, but you need to see this. Can God use wicked people to accomplish his plans and purposes yes is Caiaphas a wicked man yes he is literally planning and advocating the murder of someone else in a group setting can you imagine that these 70 people are all gathered together and he says well I'm I for one am down for murdering the guy and he's not kidding do you understand how, how twisted your heart has to be to where you 
not only are willing to advocate that, but to do that in front of this entire group. God uses wicked people sometimes to accomplish his purposes. In fact, that's something that shot through the whole fabric of Scripture is that God is able to take wicked rulers, wicked priests, wicked people and turn them to accomplish his will. And that ought to give you and I a lot of comfort. Amen? Because looking around the world, how many places would you say are ruled and led by the exemplars of God's righteousness? I don't know, but however many there are, it's a short list. Amen? <laughs> okay. Can God use wicked people to accomplish His purposes and the expansion of His kingdom and the drawing together into one people of God, people from all over the world? Yes. He can use, if He can use Caiaphas, He can use anybody else. Anybody He chooses. Because God's plans are not limited by the wicked plans and purposes of wicked people. Amen? Uh, in fact, this plot is going to be the means by which God accomplishes the salvation of the world. How about that? That plan has a specific fulfillment, a specific timing, and so Jesus stays away from these guys, out of their grip until the time is right. They want him dead, but he hasn't come in with the masses of pilgrims yet. And so the best they can do is just kind of put out a bolo on Jesus. Anybody sees Jesus, be on the lookout for him. Uh, anybody sees him, report to us, we're going to arrest him. Is Jesus clueless about that? No. But he's got some things he needs to do first. And so he stays out away from their grip, little town out in the wilderness. But among his friends, there's an entirely different reaction to what he has just done. Let me look at, let's look at chapter 12 now. Six days before the Passover, in other words, this is Saturday night. The night before Palm Sunday. Six days before the Passover. Passover's on Friday. This is Saturday night. Uh, after the Sabbath is over, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... He who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone so that you may keep it. she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. 
because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. It's six days from the Passover, six days from Jesus' crucifixion and death. In other words, this dinner is happening Saturday night after the Sabbath is over. Matthew and Mark tell us that the, this dinner takes place at the, the home of a man named Simon who had been a leper. Now, if I'm fitting the chronology correctly between Luke and John, uh, Simon is most likely the man who returned to thank Jesus for his healing. Remember the story of the ten lepers? Jesus heals all ten lepers, and he tells them to go off to show themselves to the priests. The same priests, by the way, who are at that moment plotting to put Jesus to death. Go show yourselves to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your healing. And one guy comes back and thanks Jesus for having healed him of leprosy, which, by the way, no one can do except by the power of God. Even today, leprosy is not curable. But Jesus heals ten guys all at once. One guy comes back to thank him. I think it's probably this man, Simon the leper, and he's having this dinner in Jesus' honor at his house. And he's there to celebrate, of course. And Martha is there serving because she wants to honor Jesus for what he has done for her brother. And and Lazarus is there to be part of the guests of honor because can you, I mean, can you imagine you're there telling these stories? Oh yeah, he healed you of leprosy. Well, that's great. But Les, let me tell you what. I was actually dead. I mean, you know, I mean, in the, in the universe of one-up stories, that's a pretty good one, right? I mean, that beats... That beats if you're Neil Armstrong, you know. I mean, if you're Neil Armstrong, I mean, this is a guy who, who never, had, never had any difficulty winning that competition, right? Well, you know, this is, this is pretty great party, but uh, it's not nearly as good as that time I was the first man on the moon, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, amazing, right? Yeah, well, this is great, but, you know, I mean, I was actually dead for four days, and then Jesus brought me back. How about that? That's incredible. And they're there celebrating. And Mary comes in with, with what John says is a pound of this ointment. And even today, it's still expensive. About a pound of this would run you roughly $10,000 from what I understand today. At the time, it was a year's wages. 300 denarii was all of the work days in a year run you a year's wages to buy this. And Mary takes some of this. She doesn't use all of it. That's why Jesus later tells her she, she needs to keep it for the day of my burial. Judas has got his eye on what's left and says, we ought to take this and feed the poor with it. By the way, I, gotta, I get a good skim off of what we sell. And And she takes this and she, if you can imagine this, she pours it on his feet. This is a time when people wore sandals where livestock roamed the streets. What's the dirtiest part of your body in that situation? Your feet. And then she does something that is absolutely scandalous in that day because married women wore their hair up. 
In fact, even single women wore their hair up. And this was considered kind of the glory of your femininity. And you never let your hair down in the presence of anyone other than your husband. It's considered an intimate act to let your hair down in public. It was shameful. Mary takes and unbinds her hair and lets it all down. And she pours this ointment on Jesus' feet and she wipes the ointment with her hair. And what is she saying? She is saying, the very best thing that I own, the most glorious thing about me as a woman is sufficient only to wipe the dust off of the feet of this man. Caring for someone's feet was something only the lowest of slaves did in that day. And Jesus, in her eyes, is worthy of the greatest, most valuable things that she has. And it's sufficient only to clean his feet. It is a sacrifice, in other words, of deep worship and love for Jesus. You know, Judas has a different response. He says, you should have sold that, given the money to the poor. And Jesus tells him, essentially, you can help the poor whenever you want. They're always going to be around. But you won't always be able to honor me like she has just done. Why does he give that response? I think it's because Jesus knew what was really in Judas' heart. He really knew that Judas was a hypocrite. That he wanted to be close to Jesus as long as there was money in it. And ultimately, Judas will reveal that to be the case when he will betray Jesus for money. See, I think, G I think Judas can read... I think he's a smart guy. I think he can read the handwriting on the wall. He knows where the chief priests and the Pharisees are at. And he can see that Jesus is going to die. And I think his thought is is that the last three years of his own life uh, following Jesus have been a waste because Jesus is not going to be king. There's not going to be a kingdom. And by the way, if there's no king and no kingdom, then there's no place for me, and I'm not going to rule either. And so at least at the very minimum, I'll cut my losses with Jesus. And in a way, I think Mary and Judas reveal to us the personal motivations behind the two responses to Jesus. In his way, Judas is like the chief priests and the Pharisees who want him dead because Jesus' life threatens their power and their prestige and their finances. And so Judas is beginning to see Jesus the same way. And that's why he will conspire with them to end Jesus' life. That's the reason, by the way, where they not only want Jesus dead, but now they want Lazarus dead too. We not only got to get rid of Jesus, we got to get rid of any incontrovertible evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Jesus is a threat to them because they're greedy and unbelieving. But Mary, on the other hand, is like all the people who see Jesus not as a problem but as the answer to their deepest and most heartfelt prayers. And they are just like her in seeing, Jesus, in seeing Jesus and his power and Lazarus's resurrection as proving not that Jesus is leading people astray, but that Jesus is in fact the Messiah they've longed for all their lives. I titled this message, Whose Side Are You On? Because I think that's what John is showing us that Jesus presents a binary choice to us. It's one or it's the other. Either He is the Messiah whom He claims to be, and He is therefore worth sacrificing the greatest and the best things you have in this life for Him and for His honor and to worship and bow down before Him, or He is leading people astray. Either the sacrifices that you make for him in this life will be worth it in the end, or they will not be. Lazarus provides great evidence of the fact that they will be worth it. Amen? But it's one or the other. There is no middle ground. Either you will be like Martha who served him, Mary who extravagantly loved him, and the disciples who followed him, or we will be like the hypocrite and the traitor Judas and the murderous religious leaders who wished that Jesus had never come into their lives at all. What about you? Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? If you belong to Jesus, then Jesus calls you to offer to Him with every day of your life, every moment of every day, the very best of your love and worshipful sacrifice. And you seriously have a calling to go through each day recognizing Him as Lord and giving Him the best that you have out of each one of those days that He gives you. And to see each day that you are in the world as a day you have been commissioned by Jesus to serve Him, to worship Him, to honor Him, and to draw other people to Him. That's what the Great Commission means. Amen? that we are sent from Jesus into the world as His emissaries to draw other people to Him, to make disciples of Him, and to be disciples of Him ourselves. But if you've not embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord yet, can I tell you that Jesus is worth switching sides for? Poor fact. He is. And, and by the way, that is how every person comes to follow Jesus. 
They were once on the other side of this discussion and they were saying, I don't know who Jesus is. I don't know what he has done and I don't believe in that stuff. But there comes a point where you encounter him and you realize, no, Jesus is really who he claims to be. And he is worth laying my life down for. He is worth sacrificing everything good in this life. He is worth the very best that I have. In fact, the very best that I have is not sufficient to honor him. And God calls you to switch sides. To recognize that your sins put him to death. And that is true. But that he came for that very reason to save you from the penalty of death and to make you his follower. He is worth living for and he is worth dying for if it comes to that. Will you put your trust in him? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this calling from you into relationship with a man who didn't just go around claiming to be Messiah, who proved over and over that he is Messiah, who died and rose again to show that he is Messiah, who forgives sin, something only God can do, because his death paid the penalty for sin and took it away from us and has canceled out the power of sin over our lives as we follow Him. As we are filled with Your Holy Spirit, Father, You begin ridding us of the presence of sin. And one day we will be fully rid of it as we stand before You in glory. Father, You call us into a life that is worth failing in. A life of following Jesus however imperfectly we might do so. You call us into that life because you love us and you have forgiven our sin and made us yours. Father, I pray if there's any person here who has not trusted in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that they do, that they switch sides and join with the disciples, join with Mary and Martha and billions of others who have decided that Jesus is not only worth living for, he's worth dying for if need be. And Father, I pray for those of us who have long since become your children, I pray that we would dedicate each day to like Mary and Martha, serving and honoring and worshiping that your Son, Jesus Christ, with the very best that we have, knowing that it's inadequate, but nevertheless offering in humility the very best of our lives, the very best of our resources to Him who loved us first. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.